one two. Landline. Landline. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks, thanks for having me. Excited to be back. Welcome and Happy New Year, Landline listeners. It's 2016 and podcasts are all the rage, so it's a good thing you stopped by. Today's episode is another version of Two Guys, One Cup, where Tim and I drink a bottle of wine and talk about it. We also get into some in-depth conversations about yoga, both with clothes on and without, how to cook squash, braising short ribs, whether or not you can say lesbian, you being me. If you like this episode, the best thing you can do for the show is tell a friend, send them to soundcloud.com slash landline podcast. 2016 announcement, we are on iTunes under landline. Send us an email at landlinepodcast at gmail.com. If you like this show, listen to our others including an interview I did with Molly Hannon, a writer from Berlin, with Giles, the hostel owner, where we're making delicious cocktails, and, of course, all your favorite sports updates about the NFL playoffs with Mike, Chris, and I. Thanks for stopping by, and enjoy the show. It's the 28th episode of the Landline Podcast. And episode number two or three of... Two Guys, One Cup. It's episode three of Two Guys, One Cup. Um, I was just looking at the archive on talkforaliving.com to refresh my memory of exactly what we had drank before. It was a um, Locations Project F, which was Ah. a, what was that? Is that a Loire Valley? It was like a French red blend similar to a Pinot Noir, right? Eh, close enough. And, well, what was it? It was a, it was a blend of some kind. It was a it was a Loire Valley Rhone blend. So I believe it was Grenache, Mavedra, Syrah, and some other sort of crappier varietals. And then we drank Creos, which was an, ah. an Argentinian white. It was Argentinian, right? Yeah, the Susana Balbo Torontes. Her. And yeah. and that was a kind of a that was a an easy drinking snappy white that was made with grapes brought by the monks to Argentina. Uh, you know that sounds accurate enough. Um, you know it's a, a an interesting wine varietal in its sort of simplistic flavors, um, but highly aromatic and made by a pretty famous uh, female Argentine winemaker, and there are not a lot of those. Right, and now her kids have taken over. But let's quickly run through the rules for our new listeners, um, and then we got to start drinking. That's the, the problem with the start of this podcast is you really have to start drinking before you get or in we'll it. we'll never finish. Yeah, we'll, we'll just na- – and, and we will – I mean, the end of this podcast is one of us getting divorced, and hopefully we get to at least 20 episodes. So Yeah, well, and then if, a, a dozen's a no, a case is a noble goal. Um, a case. Uh, and if my wife were here, she would say something like, ha, 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 women, they're just the worst, am I right? Um, yeah. To, to make fun of me for making a divorce joke. So... 
The game is this. Tim and I open the same bottle of wine from a distance that is greater now than it used to be. Um, probably right around 26, 2800 miles from Watertown, Massachusetts to Las Amigas Road in Napa, California. Technically Carneros. And we drink the wine. And we keep drinking the wine. And usually we finish the whole bottle. And the podcast goes from some formal tasting notes to some general lubed up conversation to usually just some like flat out drunkenness. Although at this point, Tim, your alcohol tolerance as the head winemaker at Saintsbury in Carneros has got to be at an all time high. Do you feel like your alcohol tolerance is at an all time high? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, last, last Friday I was accused at lunch at Friday lunch of being a, a, a bitter drunk which I thought, in retrospect, was apt and appropriate. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, better, the better of a drunk you think you are, the more of an alcoholic you probably are. So uh, my tolerance is tolerable for most of the time, and then now and then I'm old loudmouth drunk McGee. Um, and you can ask Rachel about about Thanksgiving. I was I was in rare form, or maybe it was pretty normal form of just being a loudmouthed drunken New Englander at a California Thanksgiving. Well, my my strategy this week has been if I get all my drunkenness out of the way at home, then when I go to my family Christmas, I'll what do you, what do you, oh you're opening? No, no, I'm just you just. You just you hear that corkscrew just entering. I'm just I'm feeling it out, you know. All right. Well, figure, well screw, the next time you talk, it could take five minutes, and then who knows if we'll get. Well, to screw this. my story. I'm gonna take the condom off the top and start really getting Ooh, into this thing. I cut the condom off, but I've got lambskin over here in California, so <laughs> it was easier. That'll never work. You're gonna have a wet cork. Okay. All right. We're drinking. We're drinking a. Go ahead. You pop yours. All right. Here it comes. Ooh. Oh, good. Very well picked up on the audio program. Thanks to Studio One for our editing software. So I've got, not that they gave it to us. I, I bought it. Actually, it was a wedding present. Um, okay, we were, we're drinking the Ridge 2013 Three Valleys, which is a Zinfandel heavy blend, 80%. And once again, we're not going to say too much about the wine now. We're going to open it, we're going to have a sip, and then we're going to get into it. Um, here's Mike. Oh, you hear that? Ooh. Oh, yeah. That's the stuff. There's me. I'm using the, really the only appropriate wine glass I have, which is a stemless Rydell wedding present. What are you drinking in today, Tim? I'm drinking out of a Riedel. Um, it's sort of their classic... Bordeaux shape. Um, With, I got about 300 of them from my wedding, and I've been slowly trying to break them. Now, does it have flares at the top? Uh, no. So no, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna classic shape. I'm gonna follow the tradition that we set out at least in the first one, where I'm gonna pour my wife out a glass. I don't know if you're interested in that. Well, my wife is on the couch. Um, uh oh not working 
lying around on most likely Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook, even though she's not on that, or some shopping website. So if my dear wife would like a glass, she knows where to get it. Okay. Well, uh, before we sip, um, we're going to have to cheers to something, but very purple is what I'm going to go ahead and say. Or is that even purple? It's like a super, it's uh, like a current, a dark current red. Yeah, even a garnet colored. I would say that it's the, the color lacks quite a bit of purple um, when you're looking at it uh, chemically. Um, but it's got good color, deep color, and uh, for the most part, it looks useful and, and, and delicious. I feel like a Tiffany lamp could have this color when you hold it up to a light. Jesus, we just really uh, established established ourselves as a part of the 1%. Um, well, I'm, I only know that from watching public television, which I get on an over-the-air antenna, so I, from, from Antiques Roadshow. All right, well, what are we cheers, cheersing to, Tim? We're going to see each other in a week, which is exciting. Um, should we cheers to the holiday season, to going through this holiday season with our heads held high and with the least amount of toxic shame to date since we were since before we started drinking? Yeah, it's only getting better. And last year, I guess we had a, a really wonderful holiday season together in Portland um, at a friends-only Christmas. And this year we've reverted back to visiting our families. And um, I only hope that next year we just immediately turn around and have a friends-only Christmas again. Let's do it. My my family has has they're okay with it. All right, we're having a sip. Cheers to you. Cheers. Yum. Yeah. Now, yeah, it's pretty good. Do you think we're making a mistake not opening these up early? I mean, it's a 2013. It's a robust varietal. I don't think this wine would hurt from having a little bit more oxygen, whether it's decanted or opened uh, a little bit earlier. Well, but I've... you know, a part a part of my philosophy with wine is that it's a it's a performance from the first glass or the first sip to the last, and I do feel that this wine will uh, sufficiently evolve for us or we will sufficiently evolve for the wine that by the last sip we'll be feeling um pretty good about it i feel great about it um it's it's sweet and in a good way it's a little bit syrupy um which i like i think it's it's it feels less tannic than some red wines that i drink and just to inform those who haven't heard this edition of the Landline Podcast, I really don't know shit about wine. So I just kind of throw darts and Tim redirects them midair. Um, but, uh, yeah, I liked it. I was thinking, too, that I, I thought of that trick you taught me where you could just throw a bottle of red wine in your Cuisinart or your blender and just fire it up for a few pulses and deliver it as a red wine frap to the table. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking later, if we are drunk, we could like whisk some of it up in a stainless steel bowl and see what that did to it. Yeah, I mean, another thing, just a, a couple egg whites, a little bit of sugar, to see where we go with it. I, I'm into that. 
All right, well, before you give us your professional opinion, tell us a little bit about Ridge, because it's a pretty well-established California winery. Yeah, um, well, Ridge has been around for a long time. If I'm, I'm going to look at the back of the label, and I can't really see any dates. The, uh, the, six, the 60s is what I found online. Yeah, the guy who started it was a guy named Paul Draper, and he's definitely a, a pioneer of the California wine movement. Um, and, he, you know, he probably was most famous for uh, a vineyard that he has on um, in the Santa Cruz Mountains called Montebello, and it's actually a Cabernet Sauvignon vineyard. Um, but he's been making Zinfandel since the 60s, um, and he's been making it all over Northern California, and he's always had a, um, a European mentality to it, which, which is uh, sort of a, a dumb thing to say, but he's always sort of felt that picking the Zinfandel before it's overly ripe or and thus sort of overly alcoholic when you ferment it, catching it with still some vibrancy and still some sort of freshness to it, and that's sort of what has differentiated his brand from most of California's Infidel um, since the beginning. So the Europeans do it that way because they are just more classic in their approach and the, and you think the the Californians decided to let it get sweeter because they wanted to like make a splash? No, they did it because they could. Um, You know, I would say where's Infidel you know, I guess looking at the, the history of Zim, you know, you have Primitivo, um, which is found in sort of the southern boot of Italy. And then you have uh, another varietal that I can't remember uh, or pronounce the name of, um, found in Croatia. So you just had these places that um, so you could get it pretty ripe. Um, it just doesn't have the same heat. These areas didn't have the same heat that, Northern California has. Um, so really the reason most Zinfandels are 17% alcohol and jammy and uh, all fruit is because we can get them to, uh, we can get them far riper than we, than they could in Europe um, historically. Do you so drink Ridge? Like will you ever buy a bottle of Ridge when you're at the store? Yeah. Or is it like way too classic? No, it's not. I, I, I don't drink a lot of Zinfandel, even though um, I like it. And when I do drink it, it's usually a bottle that's given to me. And I don't know anyone who works at Ridge at this point. Um, so it's just, it's, it's, there's no access. I, I've, I've visited the winery, which is um, a cool winery. At least they have two of them. I believe one, they have one down in um, Santa Cruz, the Montebello Estate. And they also have one up uh, in Healdsburg, um, off Dry Creek Road, and it's a, a stray bale, a hay bale construction. So it's uh, it's very environmentally friendly um, and beautiful, and sort of a, a winery that's been built in the last ten years. Do you feel like we're sort of just paying a premium for a, a blend from a company that is known for single vineyards? Like I paid nineteen bucks. What did you pay? Yeah. I paid, I paid the same thing. Um, no, I don't think so at all. I think that uh, for QPR purposes, uh, this is a good bottle of wine. I think it's, uh, relatively speaking, I think it's an honest bottle of wine. And what I mean by that is that I think that the, the wine is sourced from 
vineyards that are farmed sustainably and uh, ethically, and they've always, they've always, they've you know, they've definitely grown in the past 50 years, but I think that they've always maintained a certain integrity in their process and, you know, their uh, attempt to make a product that symbolizes what they believe in. So I, I, I don't think for $20, I think it's hard to get that. California wine that um, a California wine that's like that. So I, I don't think it's a, 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 a overpriced uh, bottle of wine in any way. And like, when do you find Zinfandel most exciting? Like you, Tim, and when do you find it most annoying? Like, I know that I can't play the what should we pair with this this with game with you. So. And also, I'm on no, my. I like. I mean, I find I find Zinfandel most exciting in the form of white Zinfandel. <laughs> um, that's not true. I mean, white Zin is sort of the bane of this riddle. The thing about Zin is that it's like a. There's not a more California variety of grape, um, and it you know it came to the U.S. you know 200 years ago, and it just it loved being grown in California and people make really good wine out of it and people make really shitty wine out of it. But, but people grow a lot of it and, you know, so much red wine that comes from the state of California is, uh, Zinfandel based. So I like it. Uh, I like it when it's a little bit more elegant and by elegant, I mean, there's still some vibrancy to it, which means acidity um, I don't like it when it's just syrupy and jammy. Um, and I think Ridge has always done a reasonably good job of, of keeping their Zins taut. Um, nice. So, you know, that is, uh, that's one circumstance or one characteristic about Zinfandel that I like when it's done well. Um, I also like it because it's sort of hedonistic. There's a lot of fruit. There's sort of a core of fruit through the whole thing, and the wine is about fruit. You're not getting, I would say, a lot of. You can get herbaceous characters, and you can get uh, um, more, more obviously barrel notes because um, that's that's not really dependent on um, the varietal, but the the barrel regime. But I just I, I like it when it's sort of balanced, and you know, it's a it's, it's a hedonistic wine, and it's. Uh, meant to be fun to drink, um, and you know, as long as it doesn't make me black out after a glass, I'm usually pretty into it. So you're cool. You want it to be served like during a public sex exhibition next to a roasted animal and and like squirted out of a Boda bag. But yeah, that's a completely reasonable way to drink Zinfandel. And like m- much of it goes all over your neck and and naked chest when you try to yeah, drink it. Ideally you're just rubbing it into your chest hair mostly. Pig head. Um, it serves well with pig head. Yeah. I mean and I think, you know, Chase, that, that winery that we were at that hosted um, Primal, uh, is a Zinfandel producer. And so I guess another thing that I like about Zinfandel in California, um, is that some of the oldest vineyards in California are these old head head pruned um, head trained Zinfandel vineyards. So, you know, if you're drinking wine that's uh, coming from vines that are 120 years old, that in itself is interesting. 
um, because you know most of most of the wine industry in California, specifically Napa, though it values uh, the age of the vine, it you know I, I would say there's very few people who are hesitant to pull out a vineyard if it's not producing at a sufficient uh, at a sufficient sort of crop load. And these old Zinfandel vines, um, you see them and they look like nothing else. They don't look like what people imagine vineyards in Napa look like. They're these little individual shrubs. And every year you cut them all back after harvest and they look like these little gnarly, twisted, wrinkled stump hands. And then, you know, from them every spring sprouts this new growth. And it's it's more like, a, I don't know, they're just wild and... Um, old and ancient and sort of wise. So they're, they're pretty cool vineyards to look at when you can find them. And at this point, these heritage vineyards, there's not a lot of them left out there. So the people who are, you know, taking care of them and farming them and making wine from them are sort of maintaining a part of uh, California wine history. Well, you described it so eloquently. And even if you just go to the Wikipedia page for Ridge Vineyards, which is where I do most of my research, there's this beautiful photo of exactly that vine you describe overlooking the Santa Cruz mountains um, or on the Santa Cruz mountains. I don't know which aspect it's from, but yeah, it's like a shrub. Um, and the interesting thing I saw actually on the website before we started, they should come up with a word for like just Google researching. Like there's researching and then there's Google researching where it's like, you don't you're not really researching you don't really know that this is the answer but we can be sure that somebody wrote it down so it's at least good enough for us right now um so well, the, it's instant gratification yeah i mean it's like got uh, some answers you take opening up opening up encyclopedia britannica now you can just google um yeah i uh it's worthless when you think about it because so, you can always find uh people supporting and sort of denying one's argument so well i did donate to wikipedia uh i gave three bucks mm -hmm. and i also gave three bucks to firefox because that's the browser i use which is an independent browser um but the the winery itself or the vineyards were planted in the 1880s originally uh yeah. by osia perone or peroni or perone um, a doctor and pro uh, prominent member of the Northern it California Italian immigrant community. So it got restarted in the 60s by a bunch of Stanford guys. Um, but it does say here that it's owned by Atsuka Pharmaceutical Company Limited, a producer of mm. nutritional drinks and other pharmaceutical products. Well, at, that makes sense. As of 87. So... What does that look like? They're a, a basically the finances of a winery don't pencil, and so somebody needs to come in and be able to grow it through, you know, investment in order to create a scale where it can become profitable. Well, you know, I think what happened is ultimately making wine is a bunch of like uh, gentlemen farmers at this point. So Yeomans. Yeah, these guys who pioneered uh, the California wine industry in the 60s, you know, at some point, if they made it to the late 80s or early 90s and sort of the big California wine boom started, 
they were approached by people saying, hey, we think your brand is good, um, but we think we could do more with it. Um, and, you know, at some point, when you, you live through enough bad harvests, you think to yourself, well, maybe I can keep doing this, but it's going to be someone else's problem if things go wrong. Um, so I think that, you know, they sell it or sell a part of it and find investment. Um, that allows, you know, allows people to free themselves up to not worry so much. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, if it's not owned by the founder, Paul Draper, he's still sort of the figurehead of the organization. He's still the CEO. Um, he's he's still the guy. Yeah. He's, and I mean, he's the he, wine, winemaker, too. Yeah, at this point, it's just he's got, you know, other people funding it. I mean, I think that's allowed him to expand. And, you know, I, it, I'd be lying to say that, you know, the the Ridge, Ridge isn't, you know, it's exactly the same as it was, but I, uh, I've always thought they've done a pretty good job. Well, I think it's delicious. I'm almost done with my second glass. Second glass, Jesus. Well, you're doing all the talking. You got to ask me a question and let me go. So, what are we going to drink in St. Martin when we arrive in, uh, in, in Orient Bay in less than three weeks? So Tim and I and our wives and our friend Gabe and his wife are going to St. Martin for a what's being deemed as a baby moon. Is that what Gabe's calling it? Um, I don't know. Gabe's... I haven't talked to Gabe for months. <laughs> We're going to go to St. Martin. All I know about it is that um, you guys rented the house. We're staying in some sort of half bedroom because that's all we can afford. And... I've been told I need to rent a car, which I'm completely opposed to, um, because the the whole island is 36 square miles, and there's six to seven cruise ships a day that come in, specifically in the time period that we're going. Oh, yeah. It's going to be hor- horrendous. Um, but the beaches look nice, and I hope we have a lot of laughs. It's going to be great weather. I think, you know, we'll, the three of us will probably get laid more than we would if we had stayed home. Um, and that, I mean, that's worth a plane ticket. Am I right? Am I right, guys? Yeah, you're right. You're right. I, I, my favorite thing is I've been like, I've been so excited because the area we're going to, the Orient Bay, is famous for having a nude beach. Um, but nude beaches was, are what, like, you, you, I know you know this, but are you excited about how disgusting it's going to be? Well, that's what I finally realized is that it's just going to be old people. It's just going to be old, fat, naked people, most of them probably Dutch or French, um, and the rest from Kansas City. And I'm I'm really excited about just entering that world for a little bit. And I hope that we all go to yoga at the Orient Beach Resort where they have nude yoga daily. They have nude yoga? Yeah. I mean, everything, everything at the resort is... Uh, nude friendly so you can you know bring your own mat I think is the the moral of the story I think that I will go to nude yoga if you go I think we should get so effed up one night that we just stay up and then go at 5am well I, I actually, mean like, f- I think we should just wake up and go and like deal with the fact that some 65 year old hairy balls um, 
I mean, we're going to learn some etiquette about nudity. I think that that maybe we're not completely uh, knowledgeable about. So I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. Uh, there's a lot to talk about with nude yoga, um, and I'm not sure we're going to get to all of it tonight. But I will say this: I. I think that when you go to yoga class in general, there's just sort of a fear that either somebody could fart on you or you could fart on somebody else. Now, this is going to get pretty graphic. So if you have kids in the car, turn it up. But I think at nude yoga, you could seriously consider the idea that you could get pooped on. I mean, I mean, because there's, there's nothing stopping that from happening. Like, what if somebody, you know came down to Orient Bay on their vacation, you know, they're they're in the insurance business in Hartford and the kids are having a great time and they've started to get into yoga because their wife really thinks it's good for their stress and for their body and, you know, they actually kind of like it too and they went out for surf and turf the night before but they're, God damn it, they're going to make that class and they don't, before they know it, they like, they have a streaming rocket of poop that comes out of their ass. Well, it, I mean, you just you just made nude yoga seem dangerous. Well, um, and then there's the there's the big threat of seeing the anyone's body, but especially the the body that you might be attracted to, not like specifically your partner's, but just the the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever you're into, in a way that really makes you think twice about what it is you're exactly into about it. Um, I'd say that's another I mean, major risk. I think that's also fair. Um, I think that's, you know, I don't know. It, I think uh, I think spandex is the perfect amount of clothing to do yoga. Um, it keeps everyone together. It keeps sweat, relatively speaking, on people's body. It doesn't leave much to the imagination. Certainly, my spandex pants, and and uh, it creates, you know, it, it's a thin barrier, but barrier enough from you know someone projectile pooping on you during uh, Padmasana or one of those yeah, yeah. triangle poses. They call it, yeah, that's why they call it Tadasana. Like, ta-da! Um, yeah. Well, let's well, There's Fartasana, far too, which, um, you know, happens a lot. So Definitely, the data shows that a lot less farting in yoga class on the East Coast, especially in Newton, Mass, than you might see in more open-minded communities. Yeah, Oregon, California, New Mexico. I mean, probably even Florida. Um, but did you do did you do yoga at my wedding? No, I super eight. I super eight filmed it and did probably it didn't turn out. So, uh, well, there was there was one guy there um, who during the whole yoga. You know, there's 25, 20 people doing yoga. I don't well, know how many people are doing. Set it up, it. Tim. Like, tell the whole story. Like, you don't not the whole story of your wedding, but you had you had the teacher come out to the site. Yeah. So, like, on you know, we had a, a 20 by 40 foot dance floor put down in front of the barn, and our yoga teacher, um, who is a total doll, said she for our wedding present would come and teach a yoga class uh, before we got married, and. We advertised it on our website and encouraged people to come. And yoga had sort of been this thing that helped me get through, um, you know, wedding planning and the stress and emotional sort of roller coaster of getting married. And, you know, I, we had all of our great friends and family who weren't 
too hungover from the night before show up at 9.30 in the morning on Saturday, and we had a abridged but relatively challenging yoga class. And uh, specifically one person who um, is a close friend of my parents came with his wife, and he's very fit, um, but, you know, in his mid-60s, and maybe it was the lobster tacos we had fed him the night before, but he was just lighting up the dance floor. Um, and it was, you know, it, it was all the, it was like, it was like uh, all the yoga positions that don't put stress on your stomach were making him fart. And so every time we got into something that was remotely, you know, uh, challenging or, or provided any twisting pressure on his midsection, he was just blowing, blowing farts to the wind. Um, and I did my best to keep a straight face. But it was it it was comical. It was comical. <laughs> I mean, farts are always funny, but like farts in a group of twenty people in like the beautiful sunshine of Carneros, when we're all trying to like focus in and just like have a little bit of of you time right before a sort of a very important experience in one's life. It was slightly distracting, and in the right way, but it was slightly distracting to listen to this guy babble. Well, um, I went to yoga this morning. I've been doing 6 a.m. hot flow. It's great because um, Tuesday, Thursday, there's one teacher, but Monday, Wednesday, Friday, there's three different people. So you can kind of like, you can go, you know, three or four out of the five or six days and get a, a different experience. We had this amazing class with this Japanese guy the other day who was like completely different than anything I've ever had. He was like very much projecting his voice theatrically throughout the whole thing. And then he kind of gave a sermon at the end about the importance of acting yogi, not just practicing yoga as a physical exercise. Um, and even gave like suggestions of rude things people had said to him in the hallway at the studio, um, which I kind of, he was very subversive. I liked it. Um, he was all tattooed up and like was wearing a basketball jersey and cargo shorts. And then when he would like show a few of the poses, he would just be like an absolute ace in the hole. Um, but today, just want to clue you in on a few weird things that happen i'm getting sick of this teacher she's i don't like her delivery and she pumps this music so you can't really hear what she's saying anyways and it was just frustrating but in one corner of the room we had two women early 40s one overweight and they were doing couples yoga on each other where they were alternating doing the poses yeah. and then like adjusting each other and at first, and you know, you see them when you're in down dog and you're looking through your legs and you, they like kind of, you catch them and then you realize they're going to be in that frame the whole of the class. Yeah. And you know, you try not to be distracted because that's the whole point of yoga, but it's like, what the fuck are these ladies doing? And then it became clear that they weren't really good enough at yoga to be like teacher training. They were just a lesbian couple who was choosing to like be different in yoga class. 
And they were making it their own practice, which... Oh, well, let me tell you, before you chime in about making it your own practice, because on the other corner, on the opposite side of the room, this woman with a huge head of black hair, also 40, I described her as, like, a power lesbian who is the head of a healthcare company in Boston, like, clearly making 500K plus a year, super, uh, you know concentrated really good yogi um she was just doing her self-practice completely completely out of rhythm with the rest of the class and i think her mat might have actually been turned perpendicular to everybody else um and and then she left early of course of course she left early but then i wondered well wait a second was she just a homeless person who came in late and left early and didn't pay I mean, there was the other option of who she could have been. Yeah, listen, it's it's. I, I'm, I'm trying to evolve as a yogi, and um, like people sort of interpreting a yoga class or a yoga instruction um, can be really distracting. I agree. I think good classes are ones in which teachers sort of give moments of sort of freeness to you know, yogi's choice, as they say, where they can, you know, if people need to get into inversions or do headstands or handstands or or prolonged uh, hand balances, they have their opportunity to do that. But, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. It's really annoying. Um, but then, you, you know, what you're supposed to do is just look inside, you know, and and try to concentrate on yourself. But it, I agree, it can be uh, distracting at, you know, at best. So, Do I have to worry um, about saying, like, lesbian like that? Can we just talk about that as a cultural issue now that we're halfway through a bottle of wine? Like, so I called... Were the, they lesbians? Well, I the mean, one, the, the, the couple was definitely lesbians, but then the woman in the corner, maybe she wasn't. Maybe she just, maybe I was stereotyping her. But, like... You know, I I have lesbians who listen to this podcast who I love very much. So then I'm like wondering, who am I to say that they're lesbians? But then do I have to care? Isn't that the whole point of like comedy and just culture? I mean, that's that's your own neurosis to work out. Um, God, I hate that neurosis. Yeah, well, you know, sort of like, do you want to... I mean, how funny, you know, how funny are those observations? Um, well, how funny are they? <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I don't know. I think, you, you know what, if you're right, then maybe it's not inappropriate. And if you're wrong, maybe it is. Or maybe people uh, stereotype themselves. I don't know. Um, Listen, I love lesbians and they love me. So I guess I should just go with that. Well, we've always we've always sort of said that you were a lesbian trapped in a man's body. Um, so, for what that's worth. So it takes one to no one. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of street cred. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I uh, it was pretty annoying. Um, so, so just to give you a little update on my. Just to continue to talk about yoga. Yeah, let's um, do it. Guys get drunk and talk about yoga. Well, my uh, my yoga studio, which I've been a member of uh, pretty religiously for the past year, is joining 
another yoga studio as of this week. A, mer- and a merger, Friday, and, a merger and acquisition. A merger. Um, and the problem was is that my instructor who owned the studio didn't like her space, but and this other new studio that opened up, um, they didn't have enough instructors. So they joined forces and now Courtney, my sort of my teacher, um, doesn't have to like do the day to day running of a studio and can just teach um, and get a paycheck, which she's pretty stoked about. So what's when the I downside first about it about a month ago? I gave her quite a bit of sourness, um, which I then proceeded to like write her this long email apologizing about my sourness and, you know, telling her how important red was to me. Um, and then sort of making it clear that I was only, um, only, only like concerned that she was getting forced into this merger. And if, you know, and you know how much I thought of her as a teacher. Um, and then I proceeded to write about the first yoga class I ever took with her, which was like six years ago at a different studio um, in which I proceeded to sort of like compliment her in a way that might be uncomfortable to someone who doesn't understand the relationship and to, um, you know, describe sort of these idiosyncrasies of that first encounter. Um, and, you know, she wrote me back and told, told me that it was like all okay. And that it was all for the right reasons. And then she said, now for the awkward part, um, this person that you described giving you uh, yoga lessons six years ago at Ubuntu, the other yoga studio, was in fact not me, but another yoga t- teacher named Emily. Um, so that was slightly embarrassing, um, but we got through it. And, uh, you know, now we're going to have a new yoga studio. Uh, is it closer? Is it further away? or is it's, it? It's, it's equidistant and equally as annoying to get to. It's like downtown Napa, but on the east side, so there's not a good way to get there. Well, okay, a few things. First of all, the one thing I can't do in yoga, so I, I've been doing yoga for two and a half months. I am new to yoga. I really don't know shit about yoga. I'm doing a pretty good job. I'm definitely stronger. I'm definitely losing some pounds, um, and I'm into it. I think it's great. I, I am I am converted, and I, I talk shit about it, and really a part of me realized maybe two weeks ago that the reason I always talk shit about it is because I had not yet truly become an adult, and I think one of the things I'll say to you, my friend Tim, is that I think you kind of became an adult before a lot of your other friends, and you know we have a lot of friends who are still not adults, um, but the day that you can go to yoga and not be embarrassed that you have to be in the front row and be a complete idiot about it is the day that you basically become an adult, um, I think. But what I won't do in yoga class is clear my mind because what I'm doing when I'm in down dog or doing my, you know, um, whatever they're called, flow. What are they called? Flows when you're going from down to 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 uh, up and down again. You know, what the fuck is that called? Uh, sun salutations? No, just like the... Vinyasas. No, what, what's it called when you just, like, transition from one to the next? But you can, like, skip it. 
talk. I'm asking Anna. She's listening. No, it's not vinyasa. It is a vinyasa when you when you do the chaturanga. Chaturanga, chaturanga. There we go, chaturanga. Yeah. So the thing that I won't do is I won't give up f- scheming in my head during yoga. That's what I'm doing. I'm like working numbers out. I'm thinking of business ideas, thinking of ways to sell cases of wine. So I thought the other day, well, you know, this is with this Japanese guy. This is really like church. I mean, this is this is like the best version of church that anyone has ever come up with because you're sweating. You're being asked to shut up. Nobody's talking and you're going through this process and you're having a spiritual moment. And it's really I mean, there's certainly some parts lacking compared to traditional church, which I think has some amazing parts as well. But. What if you, and you have the perfect landscape for this, Tim, what if you had free community yoga in your barn every Sunday, 10 o'clock, no charge, no, there's nothing being traded or anything. It's just like anyone can come, you can be terrible at it, you can be good at it, and it's basically a church service of yoga. I mean, I think that's pretty much what I go to every Sunday, um, not at my barn, and I pay for it, but... Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that, that it's um, a lot of people find a lot of solace and comfort in their yoga practice, and it's uh, it becomes a pretty sacred thing pretty quickly. And even if I think even if uh, you scheme throughout it and you can't sort of find quietness mentally, like it's still a really satisfying and eventually uh, necessary part of your life if, if if you get into it i think it's a great idea i, I think well, that a lot, it, most people would not want to do yoga in my barn in the dirt but right, if i own well, like well, a beautiful barn with a wood floor and like a glass wall looking out over the vineyard um i would i'd turn it into a yoga studio and have people come to it all the time or even like i'm more saying like thetford vermont or like some some small town in some small place that it's like a community gathering. Like, I don't know if Napa needs any more yoga. Like, I'm not saying that vindictively, but people have got their, they can pay for yoga. They know where to go. They've got it. But if you could bring yoga to a town as like a community gathering and as a way for people, especially like middle, lower income people who maybe aren't exercising that much, even if it's one day a week where they're just like getting their heart like pumping a little bit and getting some sweat going, what a great community experience. I mean, I, I agree with you completely. And I think that, um, you know, I, it's, I, it's funny. I, I, like, I, I take so much pleasure from it. And, you know, I, uh, I, I, I prosthetize often about the benefits of yoga. And, you know, I, I've had some back issues in the last couple of years. And my chiropractor, um, talks a lot of shit about yoga and today I just finally I told her I was like I don't really care if you think yoga is not good for people or not why I come to you is to fix the things that yoga might cause because I want to do yoga and I need to do yoga and yoga I want yoga to be a part of my life and if it's necessary for me to come to a chiropractor when something about my practice throws me out of wax that's a price I'm more than happy to pay and, uh, you know, I sort of shut her up. But we'll be right back with the second half of the show. Best thing you can do for us is go to our website, tell a friend, 
and email the show with your questions, comments, and concerns. Or call us up, 617-744-1895. Leave a message. We'll play it on air. We'll call you back. We'll chat. But thank you once again for listening. Send us an email. Tell your friends. And stay involved. Remember, we're on iTunes. Now back to the show. Can I tell you what I'm excited about in in the culinary world tonight, Tim? I can't wait. I, I I can't wait to talk food. I've got some I've got some new new tricks up my sleeve. Well, I'm all about the the simple basics. There's a, a few things in the in the world that make me have a warm heart. If that English works out, um, pouring my third or fourth glass here. I don't know what it is. Uh, this wine's delicious, right? I mean, this is a pretty decent wine. Yeah, I mean, like that's what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be anything but delicious. So, I mean, that's it's it's doing its job. I would say that it is substantial. It has a substantial taste profile. It is definitely here in my house right now. It is not a throwaway bottle. It's like a this this is having an impact on me, and it's it's taste is changing. It's getting less. I don't know. Maybe it's my tongue is being paralyzed, but it seems to be a little bit more dynamic than it was in the beginning. Um, no, I think it is opening up. I I, I think that uh, wines that have that are taut or tense um, at opening, I think that they start performing. And that aspect of performance, that unwinding, um, is sort of the fun part of drinking a bottle of wine to your dome. That that and the drunkenness. <laughs> yeah. So so fast forward to me having a long talk about what makes me excited about food, but I found these beans in the um, Wilson farm. So there's tiers of farm stands. There's like the best farm stand in the world is the one that you weigh your own vegetables and use like a pad and a paper to figure out what it is and stuff your money in the box. That's like the Shangri-La of farm stands. They're usually open, and they have a they have a change cup where you can just make your own change. Yeah, or they're really they're I mean not even they're kind of just saying look just just you know short change us and don't make change just if it costs fourteen bucks put in a ten and get in your car and leave. Um, the, the you know the government's tax yeah, we're up because we don't have to pay anyone an hourly to stand here. Yeah, and the government's tax subsidies for a working farmer what are really keeping this in the family all these years. So. So that's open in at least in northern New England. That's open from you know July fifteenth until September fifteenth. But um, then there's this sort of tier two. There might be a tier two that I'm not describing, but either a tier two or a tier three is the year round. It's called farms or it's called farm stand, but they are really basically a small scale supermarket that has a combination a combination of a ton of vegetables and produce that they grow on their own. A lot of local stuff that they're getting in wholesale. And then they're also saying, they said 30 years ago or whatever, they said 50 years ago, fuck it, people are going to buy oranges, they're going to buy grapefruits, they're going to buy all this stuff that doesn't grow around here, and we're going to get it in. And we're going to get it in as cheap as we can and as high quality as we can, and we're going to try to make people, you know, there's going to be 350 Christmas trees out front at Christmas, there's going to be a pumpkin season, there's going to be a cider donut season, and we are going to subsidize the grocery shopping with local seasonal product. But really, we're also going to be selling the same bullshit you can get at Safeway or Shaw's or Stop and Shop or, you know, whatever. Whole Foods at this point. That's another topic we have to get into, whether Whole Foods is going downhill in, in, on the West Coast like it is here. But anyways, 
at Wilson's Farm in Lexington, Massachusetts, I found these dried beans on a wooden shelf below the produce. You wouldn't be able to see it unless you looked. And it's this guy in Maine, or these people in Maine, it's called Bears Beans. And they're growing organic beans and drying them and putting them in cute bags with, um, you know, there it was $4.99. I probably could have gotten it for $3.49 at this other place where I saw them. But I got the uh, bean soup bag, which had just like, you know, made to look like they were typewriter instructions on the front. Soak them overnight. It's got peas. It's got, you know, cannellini beans. It's got kidney beans and some black beans, whatever, red kidney beans. Soak them overnight. And then it just has directions to basically add a can of tomatoes, some lemon juice, a bay leaf, salt and pepper, an onion, garlic. And I added chicken and sausage, of course. And I made sort of a poor man's gumbo. Um, Now, the problem was that I didn't soak it for long enough. And then the beans were uncooked when I wanted to start eating them. So I jacked up the flame, put the top on the Le Creuset, and tried to sort of pressure cook them. Yeah. Um, and it worked. Pressure cooker. I mean, by the time I had my first mug, they were edible. And by the time I'm drunk and get off this podcast, it's going to be delicious. But that little bag of locally grown beans just gave me, like, such a good feeling about, like, Okay, there is an alternative. There's now, could we serve people at scale with these beans? No, but like this guy has figured out a way to package them nicely, to get them in at a reasonable price because they're beans, to get them into supermarkets where people like me are shopping, and I found them. Like I felt good that I made that connection. I found his beans on the bottom shelf and I bought them and I'm gonna keep buying them. They've got lentils, they've got garbanzos, like they're doing it all. So what say you to that? Well, I say you to that. There's this really great company in Napa called Rancho Gordo. And more or less, I don't know, a a dozen years ago, this guy decided to start growing heirloom beans in Napa and uh, drying them and and selling them. And they're amazing. It's like uh, everyone has this idea of what a bean is. And even the best forms of beans that they sort of uh, try at restaurants um, never sort of, I don't know, they, they, they never uh, enchant or seduce you. Um, but, you know, Brit has always been a big proponent of beans, and she's also uh, sort of like ahead of the curve in, in how one cooks things. And she pressure cooks beans from, like, uh, right out of the bag in 45 minutes to perfection. Mm. Um like perf- truly perfection and it sort of puts it makes beans a contender as a protein for a meal because i mean i like she has an almost two-year-old and i think that most people feel that beans unless you soak them overnight um they just don't cook fast enough you can't cook them in a way that makes beans a reasonable thing for a tuesday night unless you're really planning ahead but to do that makes beans something that you wouldn't do on a regular basis um, another thing is the way she cooks them makes them really less gassy, which I'm a gassy guy as everyone who listens to this podcast knows. Everyone and at the Orient Bay nude yoga class will soon, soon find out. Yeah. I mean, and it's just sort of like, uh, the way she makes beans don't make me just, you know, crack my pants. So, um, 
So she has a I, uh, like what she has a crock pot or what is a what is a pressure cooker? Like well, let's so, get yeah, down so to brass it's, tacks. It's not a slow cooker. It's not a crock pot. A pressure cooker is exactly that. It's like a slow cooker except the the lid attaches and creates a seal. So right. what happens is that as these things warm up, there's a valve on the lid that regulates uh, the amount of pressure inside the vessel. And as the pressure increases, um, the speed at which things cook increases. So, you know, like probably the, I think about when we were at that laundromat in Bend and decided to throw our frozen meat pies into that pressure fryer. Yeah, and that's like a broaster. that's one step up, and that's like if you want to cook a chicken in one minute, you drop it into a pressure deep fryer. Um, but, yeah, pressure cooking, it allows you to cook things really quickly. Um, and the reason I, like, sort of rediscovered them recently was when I made sous vide short ribs with Brit and Rye's sous vide cooker. And I was really excited about it. I was like, I'm going to cook these for 72 hours. It was a recipe out of uh, – the Modernist Cookbook at Home, um, which is an amazing cookbook if you're interested in sort of the, the far reachings of uh, molecular gastronomy, um, which I'm not. And But I decided, I was like, all right, I have these beautiful short ribs. I'll cook them for 72 hours at 136 degrees, and they'll be a perfectly cooked medium-rare short rib, which most people don't get to experience because when you cook something in a, a braise, um, it's you know, it becomes really tender, but it's because you cook it so much and you get to break down those connective tissues. Um, but one of the things I realized as I'm cooking this, uh, you know, spending three days making these short ribs is that I needed to make a glaze. And when you read the glaze, it's more or less just cooking short ribs in the oven to make uh, the flavor. So I had to take onions, leeks, garlic, carrots, um, five pounds of beef bones, uh, beef broth, a bottle of wine, and I put it into this pressure cooker and I let it just cook for two hours. And then I strained the liquid out. That's a big pressure cooker. Oh, yeah. Well, this is an eight quart, the one they had. And that's about as big of a pressure cooker that's electrically powered as you can get. The ones for stovetops. Um, which are a little bit more manual, but you can get them giant. Um, but people use those for canning and all sorts of things. Canning, yeah. And that's too- so, so, so then I had like two, I had two quarts of this broth, and it was, you know, from all this bone marrow and vegetables and a bottle of wine, and it cooked down and was just beautiful. So then I put that, I poured that into a pan, and I reduced that until it was about a cup. It took over an hour, and I skimmed the fat because I cooled down that broth, and then I skimmed any sort of crap that was on the surface. And by the end of it, I had this one cup sort of, you know, half inch of liquid in the pan. And I took the short ribs out of the bag. And the bag, when you open the bag, it smelled like dog food. It was disgusting what these short ribs taste, uh, smelled like. And then you take the short ribs, you cut them off the bone, and you drop them in this, this glaze. And you just sort of flop it around for, you know, a minute. You don't want to cook the short rib anymore. You spent 72 hours trying to cook it to perfection. And then I put it on a bed of creamy polenta. Um, it was delicious. And there's no sort of getting around how delicious it was. And, like, the short rib was medium rare and perfectly cooked. 
though sort of strangely undercooked for what people think of a short rib. Um, and the, the glaze was incredible and so flavorful. But, like, but do you need to spend three days and, like, a lot of time doing that? I don't know. I think that, you know, no, that's, short ribs that's fucking, into a, I, a Dutch oven and letting it braise in a bottle of wine for a couple hours is still probably the best way to do it. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to turn angry because, first of all, this, this bottle of wine is going to be hard to get through. I mean, this is, like... I, are well, you? I'm much, I, I'm, I'm pr- okay. I'm pretty much done. I'm I'm on the barrel aging. That's where I am. On the if you read the back, I've got it says barrel aging. It says mal- malolactic bacteria, tartaric acid, oak from. Oh bar- man, you're ahead of me, man. I still have a well. I still got a quite a bit in my glass. As long as um, you're not as I mean, I can have a cup of uh, gumbo here, but as long as you're not bored. Um, well, you seem bored, so... No, I'm not bored. I'm not bored. I, I just think that, that cooking like that is the worst, personally. And the problem is that you're contrary, Tim. So you're going to tell me that it, you didn't need to do it, and then I'm going to take your side, and then you're going to go back to the other side. I well, think no. I think the, the fork full of... Now, shut the fuck up for a second here, because I can look at the timeline, and you just... Your, your track that says Tim just got all these waves on it, and I have no waves on my on my side. So, I mean... <laughs> Maybe get some waves. The I think that that first forkful of short ribs on creamy polenta with the glaze was probably incredible. The first thing we should establish: you need to eat that once a year. Well, I don't think one should be eating short ribs more than once a year. I think short ribs once a year. Now, for all you Sauls out there, I know that's going to be a hard pill to swallow, but it's. It's just it's it's a treat. It's a special treat, and I think that maybe the time invested in that um, process goes to show you that. The other thing is, couldn't you have gotten the same thing by braising in like a you know two quart saucepan? Um, but maybe not. I don't know. Do you think that it's like you? It's kind of like you just arrived at the same place that somebody else could have arrived at in like four hours instead of three days. Well, yeah, but like, but so I'm going to agree and disagree as I do. I think that the reason I decided to do it all was because one now and then people need to explore and read a recipe because you you cook the same things that you always cook and. you saute kale every other night and recently we've been roasting about as much squash as anyone could possibly eat. And you get, it's not that you get bored, but you want to remind yourself that cooking um, can be explorative, not just sort of necessary. So I think that was the reason I really decided to do this. Um, But another thing about it that was curious was that like a, and this is my argument to you, is find a short rib that's cooked perfectly medium rare that you enjoy eating. And I don't even think I've ever to... had one. I don't think I've no, had one. No, and the one. only way you can do that is to cook a short rib at 136 degrees for three days because a short rib is naturally very tough, and it has a lot of connective tissues and ligaments within and around the bone. But when you melt that, which most cooks do by braising at... Uh, uh, warmer liquid for a long, a shorter period of time. Um, all of those connective tissues 
sort of break down and you get in, in short ribs become really tender. Well, but it's never medium rare, which is like one of the things that was novel to me in the process. And it was it was foreign but familiar and and interesting in that respect. Would I do it again? Like I already said, probably not. Um, well, was it fun? remember, I'm gonna now. You have the the option of never listening to this again, but I'm gonna have to listen to it twice while I'm editing it, and then post it, and then deal with people who listen to it. So. We over a cup of coffee tomorrow. If we talk about short ribs anymore, I'm gonna have to shoot myself. That's the problem that I'm I'm engaging with right now. Like Do you hate short ribs? No, but let's. Who the fuck cares? Like, let's talk about the squash. Like, I want to get to the 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 yeoman farmer's food. Let's get to the the basics here because that's what. I think we have a job to do to teach people that there is incredibly great food in season right now. You should not be buying tubs of plastic lettuce and Campari tomatoes grown in Guatemala and cucumbers that taste like wax. Like the Brussels sprout movement. The the I had the best delicata. I had the best delicata. Yeah, I had the and look, delicata squash is pretty much fucked out at this point. I, I cooked the best delicata squash I've ever eaten last night. And did, when I, did you did you did you cut rings and just roast them? I just cut rings. I cut them thick. I like yep. was like, let's make this like you know three quarters of an inch. I think that the you can tell me better, but it, it smelled like pumpkin when I cut into it. So I feel like a lot of the sugars might have sort of because it's later in the year, right? I mean, I got it from a farm. So delicata is also like a very sweet squash. And then I tossed it pretty lightly, I mean, relatively Alex lightly, in just minced garlic, like fresh farm garlic, fresh farm rosemary, like mediocre olive oil, salt, and pepper, and some, I think, cumin. And then I, you know, put the sheet pan in ahead of time. That's a trick I learned from Loretta Jeans in Portland, Oregon. You put the sheet pan in ahead of time and get it to 350 or 375. Bring it out with your pot holder and then just unload the squash onto the hot pan. And it starts to sizzle. Shake it out so everything's kind of on an even playing field. And I turn them over once after 15 minutes. But they were so delicious. And it was like spicy candy, sort of. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing squash. I... Uh, uh, Britain ride like when I was over there maybe a month ago they they pulled out um, butternut squash and they had two different butternut squash sort of a larger more generic looking one and these really small ones and they're like we got these Dan Barber squashes from Hudson Farm um, and so we're gonna do a side by side and if you want to blow your mind it's well, try to track down the Dan Barber clone of butternut squash and try one. So and Dan Barber is the Stone Barnes guy. Who is he? Yeah, he's the uh, Hillstone. Um, blue Stone, Blue, blue Farms, stone, Blue Blue, blue butt, Rock, Blue Cock, yeah. Blue Cock Farms. He's, well, he's he's the guy who contacted Cornell's agriculture school and said, "Hey, I've got a question for you. Can you make can you breed a squash that's more flavorful?" And they're like, oh, that's funny. We've never been asked that. We've never been asked to breed a species, a varietal, of vegetable for flavor. It's always been, 
you know, something that uh, is drought tolerant or something that is bountiful or something that has great color or something that is visually more appealing, but we've never been asked to breed for flavor. So him and Cornell sort of worked on this and made these like tiny little butternut squashes that are the most concentrated and sort of intense and meaty squashes you'd ever imagine. They're amazing. They're, they were delicious. Well, I've got a kab- kubocha, kombocha, kombucha. Kubocha, kubocha squash. What am I doing with that? I went to the Allendale Farms in Brookline. It's a pretty decent farm stand. It's it's definitely tier one. They're closing in a week. I, I commend them for staying open this late. But I the last time I went in, it was getting depressing. It was like I got cabbage. Yep. Sweet potatoes. Yep. Squash. And then I like mm-hmm. raided. I know they're closing. I raided. I got two dozen eggs, and uh, any pomegranates. They actually they do have. I mean, again, even there, like they've got citrus. And citrus is just one of those things where you're just never going to teach anyone to use anything else. And I mean, I'm using citrus. Um, plus, the citrus right well, now is out of sight. Um, well, why, why shouldn't you be using citrus? It's in season. I know. Well, it's the question of shipping. Like, should you eat? traditionally locally and the answer is no so we don't even need to go over that but um because even if you're just gonna i'm just gonna pour the rest of my bottle into my glass yes all right wait hold on let me get a good let me get some good audio of me doing that that was like that was like an old man pissing in the middle of the night he thought he really had to go but he Uh... um so so what am i doing with a kubocha squash um i I like kubocha i think it's uh it's different and like delicata you can eat the skin you know sort of like uh, i think kubocha skin is something you have to remove um a recipe that i like with kubocha is like a soy simmered kubocha squash that came from a japanese cookbook i have that i like a lot um you can roast it you can sort of dig it out and mix it with spices it's I mean, it's like uh, you can do a lot with it. I would say it's a, a lot like a large acorn. Um, I don't know. I like I like kabocha, and they're hearty. You know, the, the beauty of the beauty of squash, and that's what I really have begun to realize is that you can get all this great fall squash that you know is getting picked now, and you can set it on your counter or set it on your shelf, and it's good for the next two months. Um, and it's just it's such a robust vegetable that you can hang on to it and it just naturally stores so well. So, um, I don't know. There's, I, the, the soy simmered kabocha, I'll send you the recipe for it. I think that's a pretty good way to do it. Um, it's savory and sweet and, um, Asian, your wife will like it. Well, I, it's been the return of shepherd's pie at my house. Um, and, uh, (laughs) I, what I did is I bought a, probably a two pound bag of frozen corn from whole whole foods and a two pound bag of frozen peas from whole foods because I'm, I'm just like flirting with this idea of like can is frozen food something that we should be embracing more everything's into fresh but then you think about the energy consumed with refrigerating and freezing things and you know it, you're pretty much you're fucked but um what about solar <laughs> yeah you should read this article. Everyone who's listening now, if you're still listening now, then you really care what we have to say. A few quick notes. 
read there's a great fast company article from the last one mark zuckerberg is on the uh, cover and the title's like the only or the last unicorn or something like that there's this incredible article about um you know tesla uh elon musk Musk. building the the uh battery factory outside reno and i just love the fact that he has the ability to say well someone's like Elon, this is just not going to work. Like, the only way this is going to work if we had a battery factory that's the size of 50 football fields in the middle of the desert powered on solar. And he's like, to the desert. Well, that's what I'm... <laughs> I mean, to the desert. I mean, that's, like, that's also what I love about, like, the, the space race, right? It's like Elon Musk. It's, it's Google. It's Facebook probably has one at this point. You know, it's it's Virgin. They're all... It's all the richest men in the world who are just like, yeah, we're going to go to space if the government's going to stop going yeah. to space. Like, that's completely insane. What the like, f- what else is there if there's not space to explore? The private market. So, um, where was I? Solar, frozen. Oh, shepherd's pie. So, you know, I take the big cast iron and I get some turkey, some ground turkey meat going in there. Or yeah. whatever else I've got around, I would, I would. Rye, argue... rye would say inferior, just simply an inferior product. But that's rye, so yeah, that's fine. I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to eat less beef. The number one yeah. thing we're being told is that beef is the worst thing you can do for the environment. So it could be chicken. not to mention your arteries. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I mean, shit. Take, take a pork tenderloin if you want, and throw it in the Cuisinart and make ground pork. I don't care what you do, but. Any kind of meat, saute it, you know, and I don't even really even know what I'm doing. I haven't looked it up at Shepherd's Pie recipe yet, but saute with some spices, herbs, salt, pepper, maybe some onion, garlic, and then you get the, you put the peas in the uh, corn, you put them in hot water for about five minutes and they're ready to yeah. go. Mix, yeah. mix that, strain those out, mix them up with the meat or try to do a layer. And then I was doing a sweet potato topper. Um was sort of like a spiced up mashed sweet potato on top. And I got to say, I mean, I don't think the whole dish is ready to be sold, but if I had a restaurant, if I had a tavern, a bustling tavern, I think the sweet potato shepherd's pie would be a would be a big seller. Would you serve it in a ramekin or an individually sized cast iron? How important is the vessel? I love the individually size cast iron in general yeah although i hate i hate hate when they i hate i kind of hate when they're used like in brooklyn then you know you're like oh fuck like what is it i mean there's an actually an interesting topic what is it about watching somebody implement an idea that you had that is just so heartbreaking like shouldn't you want them to do that because it means that your idea is vindicated and like someone is actually implementing it in the world. But every time I see someone like I have, I usually have my ideas three or four years ahead of the curve. Don't do anything about them. Don't just lazily talk about how great of an idea it is. And then somebody else just like turns it into money because they have the get up and go that I don't at that particular moment. And I, instead of being like, well, good for them, you know, they, they went for it. I, I'm pissed about it. So Yeah, well, well, I think about the Fremont Diner, and, like, the Fremont Diner is this great diner in, in Carneros that opened up about five years ago. And they've since blown up, and 
though it's still good. I went there on Saturday on my way to the beach um, to go surfing, and I got a coffee and a ham biscuit. And when I got like they handed me the coffee, which had already been poured, I picked it up and I was like, "Oh, this is light." And I opened it up, and there's like two inches of space in the coffee cup. And I just handed it back to the woman. I'm like, "I'm not going to use that much milk. Would you put a little bit more into it?" And she goes, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Um, we do everything by measured pores here. And I just sort of looked at her like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Get a smaller um, cup, bitch. Ex- ex- exactly. It's an easy fix, right? It's like, don't don't make the consumer feel like they're getting ripped off. Just buy a smaller cup. Um, and the owner, the woman owner who was there overheard it, and her and I know each other because uh, they sell our rosé during the summer. And she was like, sort of noticeably embarrassed but it doesn't matter because i love them and and you know when they first opened up back to the topic at hand they um they made a baked egg and it was more or less a pork chili verde in a cast iron with an egg in it and they would slide it all into the oven in this individual cast iron and it was rachel's favorite dish and like she would get it every time and i remember after like the first six months they took it off the menu and it's never returned and, like, maybe a year after, you know, they had done it, I went and I was having lunch at the bar, and I was talking to the the, the husband of the, the woman, the guy who also owns it, and I was just like, you know, I love, we loved that dish. What happened? He's like, oh, man, that was, like, the dish we would make for our friends when they came over and, like, stayed over. You know, and we'd have, like, a dinner party the night before, and in the morning we'd have, like, leftover chili verde, and we would take like really nice eggs and bake them in this chili verde in a cast iron. It was just like a, that's sort of how that evolved. And we just realized how, how unstreamlinable that was for our operation. And we needed to be able to make a thousand breakfasts. Um, and we just didn't have a thousand little cast iron pans. So I don't know. I go back and forth on that idea. I think like it's a, it's an added effort. And whenever I see that in the culinary world, something where I know, you know, you're putting a chef has to put in an extra effort, even if it's in a trendy sense. Um, I uh, appreciate it. Well, let's finish on this last note. I mean, we've got I got two inches here, but I can get pretty fired up about the topic I'm about to bring up. Um, So Super 8 film. Oh, my Christ. (laughs) So, so there's a perfect example, a non-culinary example of something that I felt you and I were ahead of the curve on. Now, ahead of the curve means basically doing something that somebody used to do before everyone else reinvents it. But your dad gave us a Super 8 camera when we were 17 I think that, I don't know, did we take it to Montreal that weekend? I, I feel like, no, you shot some stuff in New York on it, but I feel like. I, I don't know, but he, he, my dad always had that Super 8 camera. So he gave it to us. Because and he, when you open up the, the container, it has somebody else's name in it. But so I, I think he got it at Hawaiian Preparatory Academy, and I think he must have confiscated it from some kid for making, like, home pornos with a bunch of co-eds. God, so. I wish he had just given us the, the. The films. The films. Yeah. yeah, me too. All right. So, I mean, but but long story short, long, it, there's never been an item from somebody's basement or garage that has had a more successful future than that camera. I mean, 
every dad in the United States of America wishes that they could take their Super 8 camera and their Super 8 projector and give it to their son and not only get rid of it, but also know that 15 years later there were 30 or 40 or – I mean, I guess if you divide all those giant roles we have up I – mean, we've, we've A shot, lot of experience. We've shot, experience. we've shot 50 films, most of them documentaries except for Pighead, the greatest narrative of all time. But so – you know, in and out, it's like a fun thing. We shoot these films. We show them on a projector to the people who are in them once every 18 months. The whole experience is hilarious. We only really bring out the projector when we're drunk and stoned, and so it, like, takes all this time to get it together, and the film never loads right, or we, like, fuck it up, or the projector doesn't work. It's Super 8. It's like the it, – it is the experience of Super 8 that every – dad in the united states felt in 1974 where we truly have a time capsule that i mean has its flaws for sure but so at some point in i I mean i don't even know because i don't know media enough basically super 8 became popular again in mass media but it was something that people were doing with an app um so i don't know am i just like I'm actually like the biggest hipster because I was like before the hipsters on Super 8 or should I just shut the fuck up because it doesn't matter or what? I just, I don't, it's like, it was like this little corner of the universe that I was cool in that no one else was there. I was like the only cool person at the Super 8 party for 10 years of my life. You were there, but you never really cared that much. It was like really... I mean, look, you're you you care about the Super 8 camera, but I was really like the annoying driving force behind making sure that like we had the film and it was brought and really like breaking the ice into starting to shoot. Right. I mean, that's like my great talent in the world is that I'll just pull the trigger in someone's face and just like cast off their questions easily with some little, you know, blurb that I make up. But but like now, I don't know. Or is it fine? Is it all fine? And I should just keep doing it. I don't know. I mean, Al, I think the the thing about the Super 8 was that um, it was, I mean, I had other cameras to play with. So the Super 8, the the moving picture was never really my thing. And it was something that always attracted you, mostly the dreams of you being shot with the moving picture. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All of it to that. But, but, you know, the thing that was so funny is that, you know, like, you shouldn't care. You know, it's like, you shouldn't care because like what we have now is this amazing collection of experience and memories and moments, usually hung over post traumatic incident in which like a, a bunch of our closest friends are, are looking pretty haggard, but with smiles on their face. And it's like a incredibly lovely and romantic and nostalgic and I think that's probably the reason everyone has fallen back on Super 8 in the last five or ten years because of the sort of the nostalgia it produces. And I don't think that was the reason um, that you liked it so much. But there's a precious a preciousness to it that I think is worth you know uh, acknowledging because I do think it it isn't the best way to record moments um, if you're looking simply for recording purposes, you know, for posterity. It's sort of like there's so many easier ways to record a moment, but to to, to view something 
projected uh, that was that is film is is pretty amazing. So I don't know. Um, it's I real think... film, like it's real film, people. That's the point. The reason it looks so good is because it's actual film that's developed and then shown on a projector. It's just... well, and it's the same reason that photographs are, you know, silver gelatin is still relevant. You know, it's like there's the reason that some of the best photographers in the world have stockpiled enough film and photographic paper in there. They bought freezers and refrigerators to hold this stuff in cold storage. And they more or less like calculated the rate at which they shoot film and develop photographs for the rest of their life. And that's what they purchased up because they see that as a medium, it's, it's dying. And that, you know, with the digital medium, uh, you know, it, it captures information in a different way. And, it's, we're getting close to the, the fact that it's going to capture information at a rate higher than film. Um, and, then, and then the argument for the magic of that medium is, is going to change. But, I, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's magic, man. It's magic. All right, I got a half an inch here. Oh, I got a solid two, but I, one gulp and that's mostly gone. Um, all right, you're you're going to New Hampshire for Thanksgiving. You're going to St. Martin for New Year's. Chris, Christmas, but that's that's cool. Thanksgiving <laughs> happened about two weeks ago. You know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I think ultimately, like, I, I think at the, at the core of what I'm trying to say is every time I'm trying to prove something to somebody, they don't get it until they arrive at it later. And then I don't know. I, now I'm just drunk. I think this Zinfandel is making me surly. I don't. I, I'm not even really sure. No, maybe Super Eight is never even heard of. Maybe nobody even knows about it. Maybe I'm I'm projecting. I just I I don't like I don't like that Kodak doesn't make color anymore. I don't like that um, it's becoming even more obsolete than it once was. And I really don't like that people are so surprised that something that cool could exist. I mean, that's the core of what I'm talking about. There is a way to live a life that is more fulfilling than the one you're living, people, but you just choose not to live it that way. And so when I sh when we show our Super 8s to like 20 people or 30 people or 5 people, and, and people cry. Just us. I mean, pe no, but I mean, no, we've shown it to other people and they start crying because they're so impacted by the but, but Al, I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the medium. I think it, well, but like back to my point of nostalgia, it exists in that medium. It's a, it's a, a part of it at this point for better or for worse. But I also think that like it, it, all of the films that we've made have, have captured a love and friendship of a group of people that is unique. So to see that as an outsider in a very nostalgic medium is, is powerful. Whether or not it's heavy handed is left to be, um, left to be sort of decided, but like it's a, there's no getting around how strong a lot of that imagery is and compelling. So, I mean, it's, whoa, whoa, I almost lost a half inch right next to my very, very white down comforter. White wife. Um, White. So that's it, folks. I'm done with my wine. We drank uh, a Ridge 
R-I-D-G-E, Three Valleys, 2013. It was 80% Zinfandel, 11% Carignane. How do you say that? Carignan. Carignan. 8% Petite Syrah. And 1%, they shouldn't even put it on there, Alessant Bouchette. Is that chemical? Alicante Bouchette. It's 14.4% alcohol by volume. Which is low for any Zinfandel from California. I'm shit-faced. <laughs> I'm drunk. I'm, I'm drunk. I'm going to go have a Heineken. I uh, bought a couple of tall boys oh, Heineken. God, that sounds my... so... All I have is an IPA. That sounds so delicious. <laughs> That's disgusting. Oh, God. Um, this was only bottled f- 14, 16 months ago. Oh, at the very... At the very, uh, at the, the most recent. I mean, it says November in... November 2014 on mine. All right. Well, it's going to say the same thing on mine, too. Um, it tw- yeah. All right. So that's not for, I guess it is. But that that was it, you guys. We uh, drank a bottle of wine. We talked. There's a lot in there. Yoga, squash, Super 8 film. I mean, honestly, probably my... Short ribs. Don't sh- forget the short ribs. Short ribs. Three most favorite topics in the world: shitting in yoga class. <laughs> Naked yoga shitting. Oh man, I can't wait. There's gonna be a follow up the 15th of January. We're gonna be drinking a Donny Port. We will. We will be drinking a Martinelli's sparkling apple cider, <laughs> and we will talk about our trip to St. Martin. If you want to hear more episodes, including Cocktail Hour with Giles. Or uh, Mike, Chris, and I talking about the Patriots season, which is the longest running and probably most entertaining uh, episode. Plus, we got Mitch coming up. We got Molly coming That's up. That's a pretty shitty thing to say at the at the culmination of all right. Well, two guys. One maybe, I'm just gonna say, like, I know you need to self promote constantly, but like telling telling everyone that that's more entertaining. No, no. In my face, I'm like I'm. I'm about to charge you more for your shitty half bedroom in St. Martin. Hey, hey, Tim. Maybe the 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 most well-adjusted kid needs the least help from the parent. Okay, so just you think about that. Maybe maybe it's not the best podcast that I've ever done. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's not. Um. Mike. So Mike. go to talkforaliving.com. Go to soundcloud.com/slash/landlinepodcast or get it on the SoundCloud app. Tim, thank you very much. Cheers to you, to your wife. I wish you... Bubble top. I'll see you on Sunday. I'll see you. Yeah, I'll see you soon. We'll be here. All right. All right. See you. Adios. So that's it, guys. An hour and a half later, if you're still listening, I'm not going to make you listen very much longer. Unless you're that kind of guy or girl. If you're still listening, you don't really care how much longer I talk. Check out our other episodes, talkforaliving.com. Email us, landlinepodcast at gmail.com, or call the landline, 617-744-1895. Have a great day, and thank you for stopping by. Adios.